Today we bring you an encore presentation of Alan Shartalk's 2004 interview with legendary folk musician Tom Paxton. Whether it's Lyndon Johnson told the nation, the last thing on my mind, or my particular favorite Ramblin' Boy, a Tom Paxton song is unmistakable. Peace, peace will, peace will come. Let it begin with me. Tom Paxton has become a voice of his generation, addressing issues of injustice and inhumanity, laying bare the absurdities of modern culture, and celebrating the tenderest bonds of family, friends, and community. In describing Tom Paxton's influence on his fellow musicians, Pete Seeger said, Tom's songs have a way of sneaking up on you. You'll find yourself humming them, whistling them, and singing a verse to a friend. Like the songs of Woody Guthrie, they're becoming part of America. Paxton has been an integral part of the songwriting and folk music community since the early 60s Greenwich Village scene and continues to be a primary influence on today's new folk performers. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome Tom Paxton. Tom, it's so good of you to give us this time. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Tom, you grew up starting where? My first 10 years were in Chicago. I was born on the south side of Chicago and went through the first five grades of elementary school there. And then we moved to Oklahoma in 1948 when my dad's health gave out. My dad had a small chemical manufacturing plant in Chicago, but his health failed. He had a couple of unsuccessful operations, and so he sold out, and we moved down to a little town in Oklahoma called Bristow to be close to his sister and her husband. My dad was going to go into business with my uncle in the wholesale retail gas business. And unfortunately, my dad died three months after we moved down there. Uh, We stayed, and I grew up in Oklahoma, and I consider Oklahoma to be uh, home. The old Robert Frost quote, uh, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. That's it for me, Oklahoma. Of course, there is little Woody Guthrie in you, I hear from time to time. Do you acknowledge that? Oh, with pride. Woody Guthrie is one of the giants for me uh, on whose shoulders I stand. My little town of Bristow was just 26 miles from Okima, Woody's birthplace, and I used to play high school sports against teens from Okima. I didn't know who Woody was when I was in high school, mm. but when I got down to the University of Oklahoma, I was already very, very excited about folk songs and learning new songs, and I got a hold of some, you know, some of my friends that I made down there were also enthusiastic, and I heard a record one day by this guy from Okima. I thought, well, my God, someone from Okima, yeah. and it was Woody Guthrie. When did you first pick up a guitar? My first stringed instrument was a ukulele because I went to a junior high school church camp and some of the older guys had ukuleles and they were playing Ain't She Sweet and Mm. Five Foot Two Eyes of Blue and I thought, boy, how long has this been going on? And got myself a ukulele and started to learn a little of that. But then somebody sat on it uh, and that was the end of the ukulele. And then luckily I had an aunt in Chicago we were visiting up there, and she had a guitar in the back of her closet, and she gave it to me and had incredibly high action. But I found out that the first four strings were the same as the ukulele, so I got a kind of a running start on it. For the people who are listening right now, high action means that the strings are way off the fretboard. Yeah, it's hard to push them down. <laughs> So, Tom, let me ask you about certain songs, if I may, because okay. there's so much to talk about. Tell us about Ramblin' Boy. Ramblin' Boy, it's kind of interesting the way it came about. In, I guess it was uh, 
63 when I wrote Ramblin' Boy. I was working almost exclusively at the Gaslight Coffee House on McDougal Street in Greenwich Village. And I had this little pocket notebook that I kept with me. And about a month before I wrote the song, I had heard both Bob Dylan and Dave Van Ronk sing this traditional song called He Was a Friend of Mine. Do you know that song? Indeed I do. He was a friend <laughs> of mine. And I, w I thought that was such a great song. And then this one night at the Gaslight, I wrote some lyrics in between shows, just sat there and wrote three, three lyrics. And the first and third were uh, hopeless. But the middle one was called My Ramblin' Boy. And I wrote it in about 20 minutes. And it was clear to me, even at the time, that I was like taking the theme of he was a friend of mine and just doing my own take on it. And that's how, uh, that's how I came to write Ramblin' Boy. And here's to you. My rambling boy, may all your rambling bring you joy. Here's to you, my rambling boy, may all your rambling bring you joy. It's become a theme. Yeah, it's day. been it's been sung by an awful lot of people. I'm happy to say. Do you get money any, every time somebody records it or sings it? Or oh, when money? they record it, yeah. yeah. I get royalties, but now you know most of the people who record my songs, God bless them, don't sell in the mega millions. So mm -hmm. I mean, the royalties are very uh, negligible. But to me, the thrill is in having someone else decide they like the song well enough to record it. I was at a Pete Seeger concert not that long ago, and they sang your song, and the whole audience joined in. It was quite wonderful. Oh, it was that's just everybody that's knew it. When did you meet Pete for the first time? Well, let me think. Very early there, uh, right after I was came to New York and I was in the Army, I went to a couple of the, they used to have hootenannies at Carnegie Hall. I went to a couple of them. But I got up the nerve uh, after some sort of meeting that we were both at. I got up the nerve to ask Pete if I could sing him a song that I had just written. And uh, he said, sure. So I, I sang him Ramblin' Boy, and, you know, the response was more than I could have hoped for. He said, you know, I have to take that song down. And uh, <laughs> before I knew what was happening, he was singing at a Carnegie Hall in a Weaver's reunion concert, you know. And Now, Pete learned songs very quickly. So the first time he learned it and sang it there that was recorded, he sang the chorus fairly well, my Ramblin' Boy, mm -hmm. okay? Sure. I couldn't have cared less. But I got this postcard from Pete, because right after all that, he and his family left on a round-the-world year-long sabbatical. I remember it. And I got this postcard from, I guess it was Calcutta. And you know how Pete signs his letters and stuff with his banjo, banjo drawing? Right. And, and the whole message of the card was, Dear Tom, oops, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> And then he corrected, you know, whenever he sang the song after that, he sang, here's to you. But I can always tell when people are singing the song with me, I can always tell if they learned it from Pete, because I'll hear the sibilant, may all your rambles bring you joy. He always sang rambles instead of ramblin'. Mm -hmm. And once again, I could care less. But I can tell that they learned the song from Pete. Tell me about your time in the Army. Oh, what a time that was. What fun. I did six months in the active reserves, and then I think I'm still in the other reserves. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> quite long period, but, you know, as Van Ronk used to say, you know, when the Russian tanks are rolling through Washington Square, they'll tell you, not yet. <laughs> uh, 
I was at several different bases, and I learned to be a an absolutely crack clerk typist, uh, and that, that was about it. You know, I what year did you get in? Sixty. I got in and out. Now, Vietnam, of course, is where you made some of your greatest social contributions. Yeah. Lyndon Johnson told the nation. That was the first one I wrote. How did that come about? Well, all of these songs, I think, come about from an emotional base of, this is not right, I don't like this, how am I going to respond to this? And your choices are basically two, satirically or angrily. And I can never point out exactly why I go one way one time, another way the other. I got a letter from LBJ and said this is your lucky day Time to put your khaki trousers on We've got a job for you to do Dean Rusk has caught the Asian flu And we are sending you to Vietnam Lyndon Johnson told the nation Have no fear of escalation I am trying everyone to please Though it isn't really war We're sending 50,000 more To help save Vietnam from Vietnamese I think I kind of had Woody as a model for that. We used to sing a song that Woody wrote called uh, Franklin Roosevelt Told the World How He Felt. Oh, yeah. We damn near believe what he said. He said, I hate war and so does Eleanor, but we won't be safe till everybody's dead. I think that's pretty much the antecedent of Lyndon Johnson Told the Nation. Do you ever think war is justified ever? Yes. Yes. I think there are... People out there, like Adolf Hitler was, who will make war until they enslave the world and they have to be fought. Yeah, I do think there are some, but I haven't seen one lately. When we take on Iraq, if if we could talk about that just for a moment, are you offended by this incursion into Iraq? Yeah, I think it was a hideous mistake, and it certainly continues to puzzle me how this has anything to do with Osama bin Laden and 9-11. It was Osama and al-Qaeda who made war on us, mm-hmm. not just Saddam Hussein as evil and horrible as he undoubtedly is. He's not the only evil, horrible person around. I just can't see the justification for this war. A lot of the things that you've written have to do with some of the ways in which this country is being led to give up some of its civil rights. One of your earliest was Nancy Reagan asking that we pee into a bottle. <laughs> God, I'd forgotten about that. It wasn't Nancy Reagan, was it? It was uh, Nancy Reagan was the one with the little bitty gun that Ron gave her that she kept in her nightstand. Back when he used to travel a lot for General Electric, making speeches and sometimes leaving her home for periods of time, apparently, and and she told of how she kept it in her night table, although, heaven forfend, she never actually learned to fire it, you understand. Titter, titter. And I could feel a song welling up inside. <laughs> How I love my husband He takes care of me He'll take care of all of you Just you wait and see When he has to go away Nights are long and black If the bad man comes around I'll shoot his lights out, Jack I've got a little bitty gun on the table Right by my little bitty bed Though it's really very cute How you hold a thing to shoot Is too much for my little bitty head 
I love my little bitty pistol It's the pride of my little bitty room And the gun shoots little bitty bullets When the little bitty gun goes boom Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember that I can't even remember how that song went about peeing in the bottle. Right. But but the idea is we were all going to have to do that. Yeah. And that progression, of course, comes full scale as we see that foreigners who get off planes now have to offer their fingerprints. Yeah. Do you think this country could, as a, quote, great democracy, lose some of the very civil liberties that have made it? Well, that's, you know, that's what puzzles me, Alan. You know, I think that true conservatism is a justifiable philosophy, but I don't see it here. I mean, where are the conservatives whose philosophy is that there should be less government, less government intrusion into our lives? Where are they when John Ashcroft is taking away civil liberties? They're saying nothing. Don't they realize it could happen to them? Don't they realize they could wind up in Guantanamo under some other administration? I, d- I don't understand why the conservatives are silent as civil rights are being abrogated. This leads us segueing into education. Uh-huh. Uh, shamelessly, I will tell you that my wife has written a wonderful book on fundamentals of education, and your people were kind enough to give her permission to reprint one of the songs, oh. uh, one of your great songs about what did you learn in school. Sure. I know, because you have two children and now grandchildren, mm-hmm. that you have been very concerned about what we are taught and how we teach our children. Want to talk about that a little? I can't believe that we have graduating high school seniors who can't find China on, a, on an atlas. The hell with China? How about the Pacific Ocean? Yeah, yeah. Who don't know in which century World War II was fought or against whom. I, I can't believe that education can be that unbelievably bad. So I'm I'm appalled by the education we have these days. People are not learning to write, they're not learning to speak, and then they're sent out into the world, and they become the wage earners and, and the voters. Mm. It's very easy to get very depressed about the, the state of education in the country. I'll tell you a little story. I, I, I recently went to a very smart colleague's class, uh-huh. and I was talking to them about techniques and interviewing, and I had done a couple of things with Seeger that had turned out very well and, uh-huh. and brought a lot of money into public radio. And I bragged about it, and they looked at me, and I looked at them, and I said, you don't know who Pete Seeger is, do you? And not one person in the room did. <laughs> And then I said, well, he was Woody Guthrie's mentee, and they didn't know who Woody Guthrie was. Right. Class of journalist students. And then I mentioned, uh, you know, Arlo, and they didn't know who Arlo was. And I said, but come on now, Pete, Pete, he wrote much of the music to We Shall Overcome, the anthem of the civil rights movement. And they didn't know that. They didn't know what that was. Uh Well, (laughs) talk about a mountain to climb. Oh, my God. And where was this? This was in a great state university. Well, as I say, it's easy to get terminally depressed by all this. Tell me about the last thing on my mind. When did you write that, and what was it about? I wrote it in 1964. Providentially, I wrote it just before I recorded my first album for Elektra. And it was about imagining how I would feel if. As I lie in my bed in the Without you, without you, each song in my breast dies a morning. Without you, without you, are you going away with no?
no word of farewell will there be not a trace left behind well i could have loved it better didn't mean to be unkind you know that was the last thing on my That was the last thing on my mind. I must have got it right because no sooner did I begin to sing it than people began to come up and ask me, you know, is everything all right? You know, everything all right with you and Midge? And I said, hey, it's a song. It's not my life. It's a song. It's how would I feel? It's pretend. It's a work of imagination. And... Boy, that song has showed up in strange corners of the world. When you listen to it sometime, as I do often, does it do to you what it does to me? Put yeah, I, I never really have done a show without it, and never will. It's a really good song. <laughs> it's, it's a really good song to sing, and everything just fell into place on that occasion. And when I'm teaching songwriting, which I like to do, I always try to teach the difference between a verse and a chorus is that a verse is primarily, fundamentally, about information, and a chorus is all about emotion, and that ideally the melody of a chorus should be more emotive than the melody of the verse, and that's exactly the way it is in that song. It's a very longing melody that matches Are You Going Away With No Word of Farewell, and it just struck a chord that I don't think I've ever you know, written anything since then that has moved people the way that song did. Do you ever hear it and say, did I write that? You know, I'm beginning to wonder, you know, if it's really my song. <laughs> and of course, in a very real way, it isn't. Let's go to I'm Changing My Name to Chrysler. Mm-hmm. I first heard it recorded by Arlo. Yeah. <laughs> Guy, he did such a wonderful version of it too, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And there was this wonderful, there's this wonderful moment when you to say, "Ever since man has come out of the slime," yeah. I don't remember the exact words, but, and he said, I, "I'd love Tom just for having written that come was. out of the <laughs> come out of the slime, <laughs> crawled out of the slime, <laughs> crawled out of the slime." <laughs> since the first amphibian crawled out of the slime. We've been struggling in an unrelenting climb. We were hardly up and walking before money started talking, and it said that failure is an awful crime. It's been that way a millennium or two. Now it seems there is a different point of view. If you're a corporate titanic and your failure is gigantic, down in Congress there's a safety net for you. So I'm changing my name to Chrysler. I am going down to Washington, D.C. I will tell some power broker what to did for Iacocca would be perfectly acceptable to me. I am changing my name to Chrysler. I am leaving for that great receiving line. And when they hand a million grand out, I'll be standing with my hand out. Yes, sir, I'll get mine. Oh, when they hand a million I'll be standing with my hand out, yes, sir, I'll get mine. Yeah, yeah. Well, but now let's talk about you and writing that song about okay. changing because it is so on target, you know, that the rich get in this country and yeah. the poor get shafted. And you just put such a great face on it by saying the way to get something is change your name to Chrysler. They'll bail you out. Right. If you're a poor person, yeah. you get nothing. So what sparked it? You saw it in the paper and you said, oh, this is too good to ah, be true? 
I did think precisely what you just said. Hey, the rich get richer. They watch out for each other. I mean, is Kenneth Lay in jail yet from Enron? No. Is he going? Maybe, maybe not. But you can bet that an awful lot of wealthy, highly placed people are doing their best to make sure he doesn't go to jail because they don't want to go to jail in turn. Including the guy who called him Kenny Boy and patted him on the cheek. You got it. <laughs> Kenny Boy. Kenny Boy. So I was, you know, quietly outraged by that. And how the song got started, I don't know. I think it just kind of started coming out of the pen, and I didn't realize. And then I said, oh, that's what I'm writing about, and went with it. It's interesting to me that the, that the form of that song, it's not a folk music form. It's more mm. like a music hall song. Yeah, back to your ukulele. Yeah, yeah. You could imagine accordions and stuff. I mean, you just could polka to that song. Yeah. Hey, that's an idea. I'll send this song to Jimmy Stir. <laughs> <laughs> He's record, he recorded Wasn't That a Party as a polka. Anyhow, I think I wrote the lyric in uh, Portland, Oregon, in a hotel. I could look it up. I usually, uh, in my notebooks, I usually head the page with the date and where I am. So you could do it on a plane, you could do it in... I used to be able to do it on a plane. I can't do it. I don't have the energy now to write on a plane. It takes all my energy to get on the damn plane, you know, through the hassle that we go through. I suppose if I could, you know, summon up the fiber, I could continue to write on planes, but I don't these days. When you said that you have never done a concert without Ramblin' Boy... Or the last, oh, thing, oh, on my the last mind. thing on my mind. I'm sorry. I often wonder about that. Now you know how we love those songs. Yeah. And I, I think of Arlo and Alice's restaurant. <laughs> and do you ever worry that you'll get typecast or, God, I can't do this again, and I got to do all my new stuff? How do you decide what to play? Well, in the first place, poor Arlo. I mean, my songs are just about three minutes, four minutes long. Right. You know? And Alice's restaurant's, a, you know, half a concert. Um, <laughs> I guess I figure this way. There are only three or four songs, the omission of which would, would really disappoint people. People would you know, really be disappointed mm. uh, if three or four certain songs like The Last Thing in My Mind, A Ramblin' Boy, Bottle of Wine, weren't in the show. And even if I were lukewarm about the songs, I think I would still do them because I think people have a right to expect certain things in a concert. And it's not, they're not asking for the moon, you know. They're asking, please be sure to sing these three or four songs, and then, you know, the rest is up to you. So I, I make sure to sing those three or four songs. I like to sing those three or four songs. I like them well enough that I, you know, hold them till, you know, late in the concert. Mm. And then the rest of the time is my own. And obviously I kind of stress material from the last, oh, 10 years or so. But there's also earlier songs that I sang, like Did You Hear John Hurt? I always mm, do that song. Wonderful song. I love to do that song. And so I, f I feel as long as I do those songs that they're re truly expecting, then I'm free to concentrate. And, of course, I always do a lot of what I call my short shelf life songs early in the show. Yes, little... tell us about that short shelf life versus the longer picture. Well, it's interesting that there are some times when a whole song will do it, like I'm changing my name to Chrysler, mm -hmm. okay? There are other times when the subject just doesn't need a whole song or a long song, you know, like the little song about Bobbit, the Bobbits. Mm -hmm. Or the little song about Agnew. Yeah, there you go. I'll sing of Spiro Agnew <laughs> and all the things he's done. 
so those little songs, uh, they, they, you can call them icebreakers or call them whatever, but they're a lot of fun to do in the beginning of show just to establish rapport and all that. And, um, you know, I write new ones and drop old ones. You know, I laugh with people about how I'm, I'm not singing my Joey Buttafuoco song anymore. And the Tanya Harding song is out, except every now and then she punches somebody else out and I have to bring it back in for a week or so. <laughs> But basically, they're kind of a rotating little repertoire of their own, you know. Do people forget who these people are? I mean, I often think that, you know, as generational change goes on, that you could say... Oh, yeah. I think we'd get the same reaction from your uh, state university people with, you know, the name Joey Botafuku. I don't think would ring any bells at all. Yeah, I think we're getting to the point where even some of them don't know who, get this, O.J. Simpson was. Yeah. So that, that does happen. What do you think of contemporary music, you know, rap? I, of course, rap is actually a very old form. We used to call them talking blues. Right. You know, anything that is rhymed and, and chanted rather than sung, or spoken rather than sung, talking blues. The thing I don't like about rap is the misogyny, uh, mm-hmm. all this talk of hoes and gangsta. It's, it's awfully negative stuff. And it's not in negative in a positive way. So I'm not a big fan. Tell us about the world famous rabbit that you helped to popularize. <laughs> I actually have a photograph that someone sent me of the incident of Jimmy Carter splashing with his paddle as this rabbit was swimming around his boat in his pond. Uh, I guess one of the Secret Servicemen took the picture. So who knows? But uh, someone sent it to me. And I just thought it was charmingly funny. I mean, I always liked Jimmy Carter. He was not our most dynamic president, but he's certainly our greatest ex-president. And I just thought it was funny in a perfectly harmless way and worth a song, that's all. It's more a children's song than anything else. But it sure is interesting when you sing it how the whole audience seems to know it. Oh, yeah. I don't want a bunny one in my way to walk a boat in my way to walk a boat in the pond But a bunny might be crazy and bite me in the foot in my way to walk a boat in the pond I'm very proud of you Look at him swimming, look at him fly Ears laid back and a gleam in his eye Hissing to his front teeth, swimming like a seal If you were the president, how would you feel? You'd probably say, I don't want a bunny Want him with a water boat Him with a water boat in the pond But a bunny might be crazy and he'd bite me in the boat Him with a water boat in the pond Him with a water boat in the pond I haven't, I haven't actually done it for quite a while now, but it's kind of one of my examples of counter-argument of people who are saying that, you know, topical songs are like yesterday's newspaper. And I'm saying to them, not if they're good, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. To this day, the most requested song in the Kingston Trio repertoire is the MTA song, and it was a topical song. It was written for a mayoral primary and the guy didn't even win the primary. <laughs> but, I mean, but the song... Lives you know, on. Vote for George O'Brien. George O'Brien didn't win. But everybody knows. I mean, if you sat down with, you know, like 10 people at a party and everything, and you started the song, maybe nobody would know all of the song, hmm. but all of the people would know all of the song, collectively. So it's because the song rings true. It's, it's, it's a funny song. And I'm saying that a good topical song is singable long after the participants in the story that caused the song have been forgotten. Let me ask you about the people who have recorded your songs. You know, you often talk to the movie people, the guys, the novelists, and then the movies get a hold of their novels and uh-huh. they take them and they often ruin them. <laughs> 
Yes. And people say, uh, the hell with it, just take the money, you know, and I want anything to do with it after that. But you must have some honest reflections out of people who have done your work. Yeah. For example, the Peter, Paul, and Mary right. um, have done your children's songs so well. When you hear them, do you ever say, I wouldn't have done that? Oh, sure. But it's interesting to me to hear the takes that people do on the song. For example, wasn't that a party, the, the Rovers in Canada? Mm-hmm took that song, which, you know, just a funny kind of song, about, and they made an absolutely perfect jukebox song out of it. And I was just blown away by it. And, and there was a group back in the 60s called Clear Light that took a song of mine called Mr. Blue and just did an entirely different interpretation of it that was just so amazing and valid and yet so wildly different from what I would, would have done, from what I did. But, you know, sometimes what happens is kind of like a train wreck, you know, and you just have to kind of write them off, you know, and say, well, you know, I certainly wouldn't have sung it that way. But you don't want to, I don't know, you want to—you don't want to go around slamming people. Yeah. I think what people, the general public, don't realize is that once a song has been recorded and released commercially, anybody can record the song, so long as they get, a, you know, a license which must be granted. You don't have to say yes, in other words. You can't. I mean, you have to say yes. Mm-hmm. When they apply for a license, you have to say yes, because the license means that they agree to pay royalties on sales, et cetera, et cetera, which is why you'll hear, you know, like Lawrence Welk recordings of Bob Dylan songs. You know, I'm sure that Bob would willingly have foregone the royalties, but it's, it's no longer your choice. You have to say yes. Yes, you can record my song. And so that has happened to me sometimes, too. I've heard some recordings of my songs that just, you know, make my toes curl. But there's nothing you can do about it except smile. <laughs> I know you have an album called Heroes, but who are your heroes? My heroes, my heroes are many. My musical heroes are people like Pete and Woody and the Weavers. But I also have heroes like Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, a very, you know, very imperfect but tremendous people. Pete Seeger, though, he's the guy. I mean, he's my friend, but he's also a hero to me. Can you parse it a little bit more for us? What is it about him? Well, because I share that with you, but what is it about him that does Pete it has never put himself first. He's always walked the walk he talked. He always believed that as a race, humanity could do better than it was doing, that it was possible for people to work together instead of against one another. It was possible to work together rather than fight, and that music was one of the most helpful ways of making that happen and that education that the more you learned the more we learn about the people in other corners of the world who have different ways of looking at them the more we learn about them and how they think the less likely we are to go to war with them the more likely we are to cooperate and build something instead of tearing something down and he's lived his whole life on that principle. Yes. He's always been a gatherer of people rather than a separator. He's always believed in bringing people together to work on something like the Clearwater, like the Hudson cleanup. It's a spectacular and successful example of that. Have you ever given a concert, Tom Paxton, in which the audience was hostile? No. I've sung at rallies, I think, you know, when there were some really hostile people mm. in the crowd. And I've sung in concerts where, you know, an individual would take umbrage with something I had sung and get up and stalk out, you know, but that that doesn't happen very often. I mean, mainly, you know, people come to the concert because they know the music and want to hear it. I've had massively indifferent audiences from 
time to time, you know, I've found myself in a strange venue where I you know, oughtn't to, to have been booked to appear and greeted by real indifference, but not hostility. How'd you write The Marvelous Toy? <laughs> not a bad story, that. Uh, it's a true story. In 1960, I was in the clerk typist school in the U.S. Army in Fort Dix, New Jersey. And we had to take a typing class, obviously. But there were about five or ten of us who already knew how to type. But, you know, the Army being the Army, we still had to take this typing class. They didn't care if we knew how to. We had to learn again, which is the most boring thing you can possibly do, is learn to type when you already know. So I would kill time by typing letters home and making up imitation beat poems. And so one day, using the Army's typewriter, I, I made up the words of the marvelous toy. And, of course, in the song, I mean, you never know exactly what this thing is. I mean, people are free to make up their own minds, and I get wonderful drawings and stuff from kids about what they think the toy looks like. Well, the years have gone by too quickly, it seems. I have my own little boy. And yesterday I gave to him a marvelous little toy. His eyes nearly popped right out of his head. He gave a squeal of glee. Neither one of us knows just what it is, but he loves it just like me. It still goes zip when it moves and pop when it stops, whirr when it stands still. I never knew just what it was, and I guess I never will. Oh, I never knew just what it was, and I guess I never will. And years and years and years later, the penny finally dropped, as they say in England, and I realized that I had subconsciously been reacting to the clatter of all the typewriters in the room as everyone was doing these exercises. That's probably the genesis of the marvelous toy. Not that the marvelous toy is a typewriter, okay? Don't get me wrong. But all the rattle and jattle and everything must have inspired the subconscious. Why have you spent so much time on children's songs? The obvious answer is I love children. And I also remember learning children's folk songs, you know, like the Blue Tail Fly and Froggy Went a Court and a lot of those songs I used to hear Burl Live sing and then I would hear Doc Watson and Gene Ritchie sing them and the Weavers would sing children's folk songs as well. So it was never like a downscale kind of song to me. I mean, children's songs were just as valid as any other kind of songs to me. And so when I got an idea for a children's song, I would go ahead and write it. How much are you on the road now? Less and less, thank goodness. I still love the music. I still love to perform and meet people and everything. It's just, the traveling, though, is just no joke. The traveling is really getting hard, and I'm kind of worn out from it. And, boy, it certainly is twice as difficult and unpleasant since 9-11 as it was before, and it wasn't very good then. So I'm traveling less and performing less because I guess I kind of just have to slow down because of what it takes to go out there now. I read in the Times the other day, they're now calling people of our common age my-timers. Do you know about that? No. My, what are they saying? We're my-timers, meaning, you know, how it was the Generation X or this or that. But now, people who have raised their children, the children are out of the house and oh, doing yeah. well, and now it's my time. Ah. So how are you spending my time? <laughs> I'm spending a lot of my time uh, with my grandchildren because it's their time. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually hanging on tenterhooks as uh, my daughter Jennifer is in the final stages of giving us a grandchild number three. What's that like? I haven't had that happen yet, but what's it like? It is indescribably great. I mean, every cliche about grandparenting is true. I mean, that's why they're cliches. You can hand them back when they wet their diaper. <laughs> um, but my God, they're wonderful little creatures. 
we have two grandsons now, Christopher, who is eight, and Sean is three. And they are each miracles in their own way. And I can't get enough of them. We live very close to one another. And what do they think or do they at all about their grandpa who plays the songs? Oh, they like that. They like to come to the shows. They particularly like to come to the shows, the children's shows. That I, Whenever I do a children's show around here, it's always with Kathy Fink and Marcy Markser. And they love Kathy and Marcy. And we do good shows together. So they, they love to come to them. And they listen to my songs in, in the car. And they, they know them all. It's amazing. They know songs of mine that I've forgotten. You're a very famous man. I know this may will make you a little uncomfortable, but you're a very famous man. You have children. Your children are having children. Children then have a standard that they have to keep up with. Do you ever worry about your children or your children's children having to compete with an image of a fantastically successful person? Well, first of all, I mean, there are massive holes in your premise there. I've got to tell you that now. <laughs> If you think I'm famous, drop my name in front of the class there at State University and see where that gets you. You know, fantastically successful, I don't think so, not even remotely. But they have very, very strong senses of their own values. Both my daughters and my grandsons, they have very strong individual personalities. I think they celebrate uh, what success I've had. I don't think it intimidates them in their own search. I mean... My daughter Jennifer is an academic. She's a historian. My daughter Kate is uh, very, very successful in public relations, and she's a terrific people person. And Christopher is a rocket scientist at the age of eight. He sets rockets off all the time. And Sean has the most incredible imagination. So I don't think they're intimidated by me at all. I think they love me, and they love themselves. You've written about writing about your wife and, uh-huh. and your children. Can you give us some examples of that? Well, I wrote a song for Midge. Midge is your wife. Midge is my wife of 40 years now. There's a song on the latest studio album, uh, Looking for the Moon, a song for her on there. I wrote a song for her as an engagement present called My Lady's a Wild Flying Dove. My lady's a wild flying dove. My lady is white. She whispers each She's a very, very important person in my life. It's not just words when I say that I I wouldn't have done half of what I've done if it weren't for for Midge supporting me and, you know, picking me up when I was down and helping me to keep my vision. So she's a hugely important person to me. A lot of people run away from their wives after they get successful. Or, oh, yeah. That hasn't happened to you. You want to tell your audience here what that success is? Well, I, you know, I call her my is. first and second wife. <laughs> <laughs> she, she is my trophy wife. I'm proud to be married to this woman. She is genuinely beloved by everybody who knows her. Why would I run away? To find some tootsie? I don't think so. Tell me a little bit more, if you would, about Dave Van Ronk because you made original references as soon as we started to talk about him, and he obviously had a profound effect on you. And I'm sort of wondering what it was about that guy uh-huh. that you and so many other people remember. Well, Dave was one of the best friends I ever had. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was my best man when Mitch and I got married. I was his best man for his first marriage, which didn't work. 
but we were friends from the beginning. I met him in like the, I guess it was the summer of 60 while I was still in the Army and coming into Greenwich Village on the weekends. There's going to be a, a release by uh, Smithsonian Folkways of a recording of Dave's uh, last concert. And I wrote, uh, I think, about 3,000 words mm. of a little essay about my friendship with Dave. We were so unalike in so many ways. I mean, he was this urban, Brooklyn, bohemian, cynical, left-wing politic guy. And I was this naive hick from Oklahoma. So what the attraction was, I don't know. But I just loved him, and I know he loved me. Thick and thin kind of describes it, you know. Bad times, good times, good friends. I always loved talking to him. He was always merciless with me when I would, you know, come out with some half-baked, ill-thought-out <laughs> statement about politics or something. He would just gleefully demolish me, you know but always with the spirit of real fun and real affection. But he was, he was merciless. He did not suffer fools greatly, but he did not consider his friends fools. He just thought that his friends were being thinking foolishly. That's, that, there's a big difference there. He always had time for you. Uh, he was a great nurturer and a fomenter of young performers. Always an you know, encouraging word was there from him. Was he more important to the inside folk people than he was to the worldwide audience? Oh, definitely. Dave never had a numerically successful career. He did work steadily, and he did have his audience, and they were devoted and they were mm -hmm. hip, but they were not large in number, ever. But his influence within the folk music community was enormous. He was, for example... In preparing uh, my notes for this forthcoming album, I listened to a compilation of his early recordings for Folkways Records back in 59 to 60, I guess it was. And even then, his guitar arrangements were not conspicuous, but they were painstakingly worked out. And they just always work with the song and support the song and, and make everything better. So you always had Dave to look to, to how the guitar could be used as an accompanying instrument beyond the boom-chicka-boom-chicka-boom-chicka, which most of us were doing. There was a book, Positively Fourth Street. I think I heard you sing a song that might relate to that, in which, uh, you know, sort of that original crowd was defined and some of the more sordid stuff was gone over. What did you think of it? What, the book? Yeah. Oh, I didn't read the book. I don't read books about the folk movement in the 60s. I mean, I was I was in the folk music in the 60s. I don't need to read about it. The one book I did read when it first came out was Death of a Rebel About Phil, and I thought it was a really honest effort. And yet, I kept feeling like there was so much left out that could have been in, and I don't blame the guy for not getting it. You can't get everything in. So... Mm. I don't do interviews about Dylan anymore. I've said all I can say. Um, I don't want to repeat myself too many times, so I've stopped. So I didn't read the book. I know that from people talking about the book, it's all about Bob and Joan and, and Mimi and, and Richard Farina as the be-all and end-all of what was going on. And that's just, you know, that's silly. Sure, Bob and Joan were hugely important. For the people in that journalism class, that would be Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. When you wrote Bottle of Wine, do you remember how you wrote it? Sure. This was late summer of 63. I had encountered John Hurt 
up at Newport in the first appearance he ever made in the North. Uh, he had just been rediscovered, and they brought him up to Newport, and he was wonderful there. And amazingly enough, he wound up playing with us at the Gaslight for a couple weeks, and we got to hear him three or four times a night. And I wouldn't call John a blues singer. I mean, some do, but mainly because he was a little in black and played an acoustic guitar. Mainly what he played to me was ragtime was his main thing. His lot of wonderful, intricate little syncopated sort of things that he would do. And I'd always loved ragtime anyhow. So now I was hearing this guy play like front porch ragtime. And I loved him anyhow. But the music really, you know, must have got by osmosis into me. Because right after that, Midge and I, who had just gotten married in August of that year, took off across the country in a little second or third hand VW Beetle, whatever it was. And all the way across the country, whenever I would get the guitar out of the case to play a gig someplace, and I would start playing this melody that became the melody of Bottle of Wine. I didn't have any words for it. And finally, when, when we got out to Los Angeles, I finally sat down in the kitchen of our little rented room in a the motel there and wrote the words. And they, they came in no time at all. Just no time at all. Bottle of wine, fruit of the vine. When you're gonna let me get sober, let me along, let me go home. Let me go back and start over Rambling around this dirty old town Singing for nickels and dimes Times get tough, I ain't got enough To buy a little bottle of wine Bottle of wine, fruit of the vine When you gonna let me get sober Let me alone, let me go home Let me go back and start over And I sang it for the first time at the Ashgrove in Hollywood. Do you ever forget the words of the old songs that you wrote? Oh, yeah. Sure, sometimes. <laughs> but not to bottle of wine or ramble boy. No, I don't forget them. But no. Mitch gave me a wonderful line to use when I forget a lyric. She told me, just, you know, just keep playing. You know, it'll come back to you. And you can always say to the audience, I wrote it. I can remember it. <laughs> <laughs> but then, yeah. having said that, you better remember it. <laughs> when people die, people that you knew, people that you loved, what does that do to you? Well, How do you handle it? In Dave's case, very badly. I was in Berkeley, California, and I was to play that night at the Freight and Salvage, a wonderful club there. And the phone rang, and it was Midge calling, and she was so distressed, and she knew what was going to happen. Mm. She said that she just had to tell me Dave had died that morning, you know. And it, it was, I was, first of all, I was shocked, because I knew that he had come home from the hospital, and that he was going to start treatment, outpatient treatment, and that I spoke, you know, just uh, like a day or so before that he had gone back in the hospital because he felt bad. But he had been told this is routine. It happens all the time that people come back in, you know. So in the back of my mind, I was, I was relaxed. I mean, everything was going along okay. And then she told me that, that he died, and I just totally, totally lost it. I haven't, I haven't cried that hard in a long time. I was helpless. So that's how it feels. Tell me about South Africa and Stephen Biko. Okay. And how that... Ironically, my daughter's in South Africa as we are speaking. But in a very different South Africa. Yeah, yeah, it's a different South Africa, for sure. I was invited to play down there a couple times during the old regime, and of course I declined. You know, with some reluctance, because I thought it might help, but uh, I just couldn't do anything to support that 
But the South Africa of Stephen Biko was a, a brutal place if you were a person of color. There was no real freedom. I can't imagine living that way myself, either as a slave or as a master. So when I read in the New York Times, I think I was in England. I think I was in England on tour when I read in the International Herald Tribune. There was an op-ed piece by the family that represented Stephen Biko, the lawyer who represented Stephen Biko's family, in which he told the whole story of what had happened. And I used that as my source material. And I think I wrote that song on a train trip in England. It's such a sad song oh. about how this guy's beaten to death. How did yeah, I mean, the guy, they beat him into a coma. And then they took him to a hospital 750 miles away in the back of a Land Rover because the nearby hospitals were not prison hospitals. And, of course, he died shortly after they got him to this prison hospital 750 miles away. Stephen Biko in Pretoria was laid down upon a mattress on the stone floor of a prison and he died a lonely death there. Now the country was South Africa, the victim Stephen Biko, the victim all South Africa, the victim all humanity at the death of Stephen Biko. Ah, Africa. A lot of people have been brutalized, murdered, but you have immortalized this one man. Do you ever think about that? Well, I, I haven't. I mean, he immortalized himself just no, by what he stood for. No, I think it's true that he did, but that you did put this into this poetry that has, in fact, endured. Do you ever, I mean, do you ever hear from family? Do you ever hear from anybody? Who I had an this? interesting experience connected to that in the song. Uh, talks about Colonel Guzan, who was like the chief cop in all this, and the chief beater. I think he personally beat Steve Pico to death. Years later, I was doing a concert in the Blue Mountains of Australia, little town, little folk club. And afterward, we were all standing on the street out in front, chatting, and a little guy came up to me and looked me right in the eye. and says, I was stunned by Guzan myself. Good on you. And walked away. It just stunned me. Here's a guy who'd been beaten by the guy who beat Steve Pico to death and thanked me for writing the song. What lesson do you think we can take out of this incredible transformation of South Africa without bloodletting, without... Well, I never would have thought it possible, nor would I have thought that the Soviet Union would mm. cease to exist without you know, tremendous violence. Mm. And I, I, I would have bet real money that it would be impossible to have a peaceful changeover in South Africa. I just can't imagine that they were able to pull that off, but they did. But, I mean, what a tribute to them that they were able to do that. A tribute not only to them, but to Nelson Mandela? Oh, mainly to Nelson Mandela. I mean, mm -hmm. his his was the example. I mean, he could have come out of there, out of that prison. He could have left South Africa and then preached, you know, violent revolution from outside Africa. And, and there's no telling how badly things could have gone if he were not a man of peace, which, thank God, he was. And, you know, don't forget Bishop Tutu as well. It was a great example of true peaceful resistance. Is your best peace song, Peace Will Come? Oh, yeah. 
think it is my best peace song. I think it says it as as clearly as as I can say it, that if it doesn't start with me, it's not going to happen. That I have to make that commitment myself. It's a very, very simple song. Once again, it was a, a guitar riff that ironically turned out not to be the melody, but the underpinning of the melody that just had me going. We were on tour in, I guess it was in January or something like that of 72 or 3, in Australia and New Zealand with Mary Hopkin. And (laughs) your state university crowd wouldn't know that name either. Mary had a wonderful, huge worldwide hit back then called uh, uh, Oh, Come On, Brain. He says, oh, come on, Brain, or uh, I wrote it, I'll, I'll yeah. remember it. No, somebody else wrote it. You know, <laughs> Those were the days it was called. Oh, yeah, of course. And so we were on tour down there, and once again, every time I took the guitar out, I had this little riff in the key of G that I was playing. That I thought it was going to be the song, and then I knew that I wanted to write something. I, I was thinking haiku, not technically, because that's a very constrained, controlled form, I, but I wanted something very spare, very sparse, and to the point. And we were in a a long hotel ride in a cab from the airport in Dunedin, New Zealand, which is on the South Island. Mm. And I wrote it in the cab. And I sang it that night. And it turned out to be a different melody, but it kept the guitar part stayed underneath it. When you were talking about Pete Seeger before, and I was listening to this song, Uh I thought it was very reminiscent of the message that you thought that Pete was sending about sharing and starting and taking individual responsibility. Do you think you could trace it to Pete? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, practically everything I have to say has been said already by Pete and Woody and that generation. You know, I don't say anything new, but I have to say it, you know, I say it in my way, that's all. But everything that could be said about peace has been said by that generation of musicians. Tom Paxton, First of all, I want to thank you for this incredible gift to all our listeners of being able to talk to us for this amount of time. And secondly, I want to say that you have my respect, massive respect for everything that you've accomplished in your life. And thank you so much for doing this. Well, thanks a lot for saying that. Peace, peace will, peace will come. And let it begin with me, we. We need, we need peace. Let it begin with me. been listening to an encore presentation of Alan Shartalk's 2004 interview with legendary folk musician Tom Paxton.